0: Yes, that's Numbers, uh, chapter 10, as uh, Wellesley said, and it's the little section at the bottom of the page of both of those pages, and then we go over to the next page into chapter 11, reading verses 1 to 17. So it starts with the Israelites leave Sinai. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Tabira, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found favor in your eyes. And do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone.
1: Thank you, Catherine. Uh, please do keep that passage and the whole four chapters that we'll be looking into open in front of you. Um, let me pray and then we'll dive in to see what it has to say. Uh, Father God, thank you for the chance tonight to come again and hear from your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all listen. Lord, I pray you'd help us all hear from you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us all be changed by what we hear. Um, So I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder if anyone in the room could name all seven of the infamous deadly sins. Do you reckon you've got that in your locker? Seven deadly sins? Norman, five, do you reckon? Six? No? Tough, isn't it, right? Can I go through them? Seven deadly sins. We've got pride. Greed. Lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and sloth. Seven deadly sins that, again, aren't necessarily biblical, and you wouldn't find a passage, uh, scripture and verse, that those um, seven sins would come under. But in our culture, those have become fairly well recognized as the worst of the worst, right? The deadly sins that we should avoid at all costs. Well, I think, as we look at our passages tonight, that by the end of our time together, we might think that there's one missing. Our focus as we look at the deadly sin, the dangerous sin, of grumbling. And again, we don't tend to think about it in that way very much, do we? Again, on the screen, you can see the picture, isn't it? A picture that we've used quite often so far in our series of Mr. Grumble. There he is, one of the Mr. Men. And again, it's quite nice, isn't it, Mr. Grumble? Some good stories from the Mr. Men, And that's kind of the the caricature we have of grumbling. It's something that we um, have a right to do. It's something that we actually, if we're honest, probably quite enjoy doing. And as a culture, um, as a nation, it's probably a bit of a British tradition, isn't it? A bit of a national uh, pastime to spend our time grumbling. I looked on the internet and found the top five reasons that people in the UK grumble. I wonder if you um, empathize with any of these. At number five on the list, waiting for a delivery that doesn't turn up. Number four, being too cold. Number three, being uh, people pushing into queues in front of you. Number two, getting uh, unwanted calls from call centers. And number one, all-round bad customer service. We all do it though, don't we? Grumbling. As I look back at my last week, it's definitely been there. But again, don't be fooled by the nicey-nicey Mr. Grumble image. Grumbling, according to our passage, is a very dangerous game. Grumbling against God, His goodness, His care, His provision. It's that type of grumbling that's as deadly as all those other deadly sins mentioned in the list. And in some ways, it's probably even more dangerous as it goes under the radar. We don't necessarily see it as a sin. So it's important this evening, as we look and hopefully have some clarity at the danger of grumbling, to put grumbling in its context. And that's our first point of putting grumbling, the grumbling of the Israelite people in its proper context. If you want to get your Bibles open and flip back to chapter nine, right at the beginning of our four passages that we're going to have a glance at this evening, you'll see in verses one to three that it begins with God speaking. God speaking to Moses through Moses to the people. And again, putting that in this context, the, the people have roughly been out of Egypt for two years. After they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. Where God has presented them with his presence and his rules and laws in the Ten Commandments. And so God speaks to the people through Moses. And what does he tell them to do? He tells them to celebrate. To celebrate Passover. God graciously reminds them right from the outset to remember. He reminds them to remember he says look back look back at what i have done for you that's the purpose of passover look back to your time in egypt and the rescue that i graciously provide for you my protection over you my power in bringing you out of the land out of slavery and my provision for you ever since look back and remember my past grace Right from the outset, grace, the grace of God is seen. Look back. But not only does God remind them to look back, He also, in chapters 9 and 10, time and time again, tells them to look around. To look around at all the evidences of his presence, present grace with the people. Again, there's loads of examples. I could do a whole sermon just on the evidences of present grace in chapters nine and ten, but I'm just going to zoom in on two. The focus on God's presence with them. Look down at chapter nine, verse fifteen, and you'll notice that you're introduced to a cloud, a lovely cloud. And this cloud covers the tabernacle. And again, the description goes on in verses 16 and 17. Um, It looks uh, during the day like a normal cloud, but at night it looks like fire, as you see in the picture there. And when this cloud stops and remains over the tabernacle, what are the people to do? They're to stay. They're to stay encamped. When the cloud lifts and leaves the tabernacle, what are the people to do? They are also to uh, lift up their camp and follow where the cloud leads. So what's going on here? What's this cloud all about? Again, some clues in the verses around in verse 18 and verse 23. You notice the phrase, at the Lord's command, the Israelites set out or the Israelites encamped. And then if you flick to verse 34 of verse 9, it's described as the cloud of the Lord. Okay, so some clues from the surrounding verses. But in essence, this cloud is a visible sign, a visible symbol of God's presence with his people. And so here you have this visible demonstration of it's God and his presence that is the people's lead and guide through the wilderness. God hasn't left his people alone to their own devices to make up their own decisions and to delve into the chaos that might ensue. He is present with them and he is leading and guiding them through their wilderness journey. What a grace that is for God's people to have. Again, you see another example of that in Numbers 10, if you flick to that. In 10 verses 14 to 28, again, you have a description of as the people are to follow the cloud, as it sets off and as it stops, it gives a description of how they're to order themselves. The 12 tribes are to go in a particular order following the cloud. And in verse 33 of chapter 10, find that if you can, you'll notice that right at the front of this procession of the people, we have so they set out from the mount of the Lord and travel for three days. And what's at the front? The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. So once again, what's up at front? It's the ark. You know, there, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. That's front and center. That's leading and guiding the people as they travel to their destination. Once again, God's present presence with them leading and guiding Another example of God's grace. So we see the context, the context of grumbling. God has saved them in the past, past grace. God is leading them in the present, present grace. But also God will take them onward, future grace. Numbers 10, 11 to 13, the, the section that Catherine uh, read to us, um, describes the beginning of their journey. Again, they have been um, out of Egypt by this point, two years, two months, and 20 days. You see that in verse 11 of chapter 10. And finally, at long last, the people have set out from Mount Sinai towards the promised land that God has promised. They're on their way with God's future grace in clear view. Grace in the past. Grace in the present, grace in the future, surrounded by a context of grace. Can you imagine how they're feeling? I'm sure some of them were tempted to sing, here we go, here we go, here we go. This is it. God's people on the march to God's land. This is it. It can't get better than this. They have been rescued in the past. They have God's presence with them in the present, leading and guiding them. They're on the way to the land. This is it. As good as it can get. Wrong. Because in the very next verse, chapter 11, verse 1, and if you want to read down with me, and even in your own time, read what it says. Do you see it? 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. As they set off to the land, grumbling, complaining begins to set in. And this is a a gear change for the rest of the book of Numbers as we carry on our series. It's going to become uh, a frequent refrain that will carry on right to the end. And particularly in the next ten chapters, it's full of moaning and groaning and grumbling. But it all starts here in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11. And I guess the first thing we really notice about this grumbling is that it is infectious. Again, it started here in verse 1 of chapter 11 with the people complaining about their hardships. But in verse 4, it comes up again. You notice it says there, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat. The rabble in this um verse are probably referring to as the people of God left Egypt they would have had some um, Egyptians that have tagged along for the ride, they would have picked up some guys along the way and would have joined not officially at this point in the story but added to their numbers people who weren't um, Israelites in that sense but from the Egyptians coming along with them and so what starts with this rabble in verse 4 It doesn't end with them. It carries on and you pick it up there that the rest of the Israelites start getting involved, wailing and complaining. Again, when Israelite, when the Israelite people left Egypt, God provided them with something called manna. Every day this food fell from heaven and provided them with food so that they could eat and survive. But this wasn't enough For the people in the story, their dissatisfaction spreads. If only we had meatly say. Back in Egypt, they look back to we had loads of free fish, we had plenty of greens, but we're sick of this manna that God's given us. We're sick of manna cakes, a manna pies, a manna soup, a manna sandwiches. It's just getting boring. We've had enough, we're sick and tired of it. But the grumbling doesn't just stop there, it's infectious even more. It's not just the people that are at it. Moses, you see, from verse 11 onwards, it begins to infect him. And as you read his account, as he speaks to God and his grumbling, in essence he's saying, why does this all have to happen to me? What am I supposed to do with all these people? They're like kids in the back of a car complaining. Are we nearly there yet? You kind of get a sense of Moses and his frustration. How can I feed them all, God? I just can't do it. And right at the end, he says, you know what? I'd rather die than face ruin. Again, notice the language of very much being I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. The very self-centeredness of Moses and his complaining. He is, in many senses, as bad as the people. The grumbling is so infectious, it's gotten into the leadership and even to Moses. So what's going on here? As we've transferred from grace and the context of grace to now seeing so much grumbling, how can this be? In the light of so much grace, how can there be so much grumbling? Well, I think the simple answer is they've forgotten all about grace. Grace. In the three days since they've set off from Sinai, they've had, in in many ways, a spiritual memory loss. Well, he described it in his reading as a spiritual amnesia. And that's what grumbling does. It makes us forget things. In the past, as we've looked at, they complained about how good it was back in the good old days in Egypt. How they miss being there. I wish we'd never left. I wish we were back where we were. But was it really that good? Yes, they might have had meat and cucumber sandwiches. But what about the slavery? What about the death? The rose-tinted spectacles of looking to the past had made them blind to what was going on in the present. Again, as well as he said in his reading, it was all rooted in their heart. They had God's presence with them, leading and guiding them. But their hearts were saying, I know better than God. If only he would follow my plan. God can't be good and faithful, loving, wise, powerful. If he were, he'd treat us better. We know best. I'm going to take God off the throne and put myself there instead. Doubting God's care. Doubting God's present provision. And never mind the future. A land flowing with milk and honey was just two weeks away. If they would just get a move on and get there. And yet their forgetfulness forgets where they're going. You see, grumbling is a gauge of the heart. It tells us, if we see it, that we don't see grace we've forgotten it we've lost sight of it we've lost perspective of God's past present and future grace so I guess tonight we ask ourselves that question don't we what about our heart if grumbling is gauge of the heart what's my heart looking like tonight where do I see evidences of grumbling in my life And I guess it's worth making the distinction between godly groaning and ungodly grumbling. It's not saying that it's wrong to groan against the injustices and wrongs and pains we feel in this world and bring them to God. But it is saying there is something different about grumbling against God. When am I doubting God's goodness? God's faithfulness? God's love? God's wisdom and power? Where there is that I think I know best and will grumble when I don't get what I want? Have I taken my eyes off the grace all around me? And if the problem is that we forget this kind of spiritual amnesia, then the solution is we need to remember Tonight do I need to look back at God's past grace seen through Jesus Christ and the cross to bring it freshly back into clear perspective to remember what he has done for me that I am rescued from slavery from sin do I need to look around at all the present graces that God has graciously given me around me that he is present with me by his spirit that He is leading me and guiding me through the wilderness of life around me. Do I to look forward to God's future grace? That, to know the truth that I am on my way to the promised land. Home to be with my Father forever. And what does this look like? How do I practically remind myself of grace? If the problem is I forget it, I need to remember, what does that look like for me this week? I was told of a story this week, actually, by a colleague who recently went on a conference, uh, a global conference, where he was uh, had the privilege of meeting Christians from all around the world. And he ended up staying in a room, sharing a room with uh, a guy called Pedro from Portugal. And he said that, uh, over the Over the first uh, few days that he, he shared a room with him every morning consistently, Pedro would wake up, and the first words that came out of his mouth were "Thank you Jesus that 's an encouragement isn 't it to what is our perspective as we get up each day in the morning? A cry out to God to remind ourselves of god 's grace shown to us in the- this week? Could that look like What I and how I remember God's grace this week? Every day, because I so easily forget. So as we've seen the context of grumbling, which is God's grace, and the danger of grumbling, or a heart opposed to God and his care, we finally come in to the response to grumbling. Because the question as we land is, what's God going to do? We've seen how the people respond to God's grace, but how will God respond to the people in their grumbling? Well, amazingly, it's grace. He promises and delivers exactly what the people and Moses ask for. Moses is demanding and asking for help, help and leadership to lead the people. The people are demanding for meat to feed them. Something other than manna, and God promises a solution to both problems. First, again, you see the promise to Moses to help, um, to give some men to help him in verse sixteen and seventeen of chapter eleven, and then secondly, you see the promise of God to deliver meat to the people in verse eighteen. But again, God isn't just a God of promises; He's a God that delivers upon His promises. And so in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 11, you see Moses' demand for help is provided for. The elders are gathered, 70 of them, and the Spirit comes down to empower them and help Moses to lead the people. God graciously provides for his need. But with the people, it's a slightly different matter. At least Moses came to God and talked and verbalized his issues with God. The people themselves had just rejected God completely, as it says in verse 20. And started daydreaming about going back to Pharaoh and serving him. And so to teach them. God gives them what they ask for. But it's not quite what they bargained for. He gives them over to their cravings in verse 31. We see that happening as God brings them quail. But in 32, we see it's so much. It takes about a thousand, it takes thousands of people a day, a night, and then another day to collect all that God has provided for them. And then as they begin to eat, even before they have swallowed it, Many of them are struck down with a plague. They name the place where this event happens. Kibroth Havadah, which is translated Graves of Craving. And I guess this should act as a warning to us, isn't it? As we read into the accounts of God's people of Israel, it should act as a warning to us of how serious God views sin and how serious God views grumbling. God is faithful to protect to his promises, but he will let people walk away and face the consequences of their choices. He will honor our choice if we choose to rebel against him. But the final thing I want us to notice as we finish comes um, between God promising to provide for their needs and actually delivering upon those needs. And you see there's a conversation that happens between Moses and God in verses 21 through to 23. And it's a significant exchange, which really gives us an insight into the whole passage, a key to unlock what's going on here. In verse 21... Again, Moses says, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough even if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if even all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Again, we see Moses and his doubts of God being able to provide for the people. Surely there's not enough meat in the whole world to provide for this amount of people, says Moses. But God sums up the message of this whole episode in six words. In verse 23, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? You will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. God is saying to Moses, do you think my arm has lost its strength? Do you think my arm that has rescued my people from Egypt has suddenly gone limp? Or am I able to deliver upon the promises that I make to my people? And I guess the answer is, of course he is. Of course God is able to deliver, even in the midst of Moses' doubts. The God who brought the plagues on the world's biggest superpower at the time, is not going to have trouble providing for his people now. And if the greatest deliverance was possible, then the people can trust him with this. And so for us, when we're tempted to have the same doubts as Moses, doubts of God's ability to care and provide, we need to remember the message that God gave Moses. That God always delivers on his promises. No matter how hard they might seem. Let me finish with reading you Romans eight twenty-three, Which says this. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him. Graciously give us all things. If God gave up his son for us, if Jesus came and died for us, if he has provided the greatest deliverance for us, surely he will give us everything we need to live as his people as we travel from here to the promised land. So let's not grumble. Let's keep God's grace in view. And let's trust in the God who keeps his promises.